Where are you going, Paul? In our station now. Hey, need boy. been busy tonight, mate. You've been busy tonight, mate. They must be absolutely sick of me. You've been busy tonight, mate. Don't say it. Oh, God, don't say it. You've been busy tonight, mate. Busy tonight, mate. Been busy tonight, mate. Why doesn't he just put the radio on? Been busy tonight, mate. You've been busy tonight, mate. You've been busy tonight, mate. You've been busy tonight, mate. I must be absolutely sick of you. Been busy tonight, mate. Then, mate, this isn't Station Hill. What are you pointing at me? Luke's son. This is not your afternoon and thank you for joining us today after what I can only imagine to have been a tremendously difficult week. Uh, of course I understand that you're all still grieving, yet we are duty-bound as Mrs. Rennie's solicitors to enact upon the deceased's wishes to handle her posthumous affairs. As at the time of Mrs. Rennie's passing we were still in the process of drawing up a formal last will and testament, it is customary at a gathering such as this to read the last correspondences from the departed, in this case a series of unposted letters to the council. You mean you're not going to tell us who's getting what? I'm afraid not, no. Oh, Jesus wept. Ryan! If, if, if that's all, then I may begin. Uh, to whom it may concern, there are too many fat children in my village, 
and I believe that it is the fault of the council. I see them waddling their way to the bus stop, which seems very inappropriate, as a light jog over six miles would do them the world of good. Putting on a bus service is very wasteful. You should look at investing that money in the local play park. Every time I pass the aforementioned local play park, it is unused. The slide stands empty, sadly leering like a Frenchman's tongue, and the swings swing only when the wind gets up. I believe the council should do something about this. Maybe if the apparati were painted with something like Sonic the Hedgehog, the kids would see they wouldn't need to stay inside to play PlayStation. I believe the council needs to act swiftly. I have recently cancelled my subscription to the newspaper for fear of the local children chewing on it from my letterbox. Yours expectantly, Mrs. Mary Rennie. After I graduated from university, I started a career in the hotel industry. Um, it's not that it was really a dream job. Um, it's just more that I couldn't really get much with my zoology degree, you know. But, you know, where I worked wasn't such a bad place. Um, it wasn't like a flop house or anything. I mean, you could rarely tell which ones were uh, prostitutes. I started out hating it, but you got you, you get used to it. You, you start to shake off the feeling you could have done something with your life. It's it's quite freeing, really. I mean, it's just money. Everything's just money. Um, this one time, we got a call from a guest in his room asking for a male member of staff to go up, which sounds off, doesn't it? You know. But you know, it was it was this businessman in town for a few weeks, so. I'm the one that has to go up there and find out what we can do for him. The guy seemed normal enough, still had his suit on, but the type will never be seen with stubble, you know. Turns out he had an odd request. The guy said that he was afraid of water and was willing to pay £50 a pop for me to keep an eye on him as he showered in the morning. I mean, I was happy he hadn't used the word watch. To be fair to him, he, he said that he knew how the situation sounded, but he would have felt shy around a woman doing it. I guess he has enough on his plate with the water fear without having to watch what his knob's doing. So, I believed him. The guy seemed genuinely betubed, like he was about to cry. I wondered what that would have been like for him. I thought it would be like another person weeping cobwebs. Having said that, he told me later that he worked for Evian, the bottled water company, so I guess his was very much a life of conflict. Did you know Evian spelt backwards his naive? Oh, just thought it was worth mentioning. I mean, he certainly did the first time he showered in front of me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right, I took the money. Up until that point, my evening meals had consisted of butter sandwiches, so you're absolutely right I took the money. I didn't tell any of the other staff about it, lest they might think I'm a rent boy or else a weird liar. The procedure he had me follow was pretty masonic. He'd let me know his anxiety trajectory by announcing that Neptune was either waxing or waning. If Neptune was waxing, he was on the up, and I would have to recite this mantra that he had me learn. 
Not all the water in the rough rude sea can wash the balm from an anointed king. I think it was Shakespeare or something like that. But I, I had to chant it like a pom-pom sort of cheerleading, you know. If Neptune was waning, he was on the downturn and I had to list his life's achievements in non-chronological order. A first-class degree in economics would be followed by his painting of Jesus raising Lazarus, gracing the cover of the parish magazine, followed by a reminder that he was the first boy in his form to get pubes. He had had them printed out, guillotined little strips and placed into a fishbowl, and I had to swill my hand around and choose them at random. He actually used to make fresh ones and have a rotation system, so he would almost never hear the same one twice. I think the weirdest one was having never killed an adult man or ate a box of Frosties in one sitting. I honestly can't choose between them. After a few days of the task, seven sharp every morning, I got to know the guy a bit better. You know, his wife, his kids, likes, dislikes. He liked tomato soup, but hated fresh tomatoes, for example. As I said, a life of conflict. He called them 3D tomatoes. He said they unsettled him. He must have shit himself when Pixar started taking off. I guess he talked a lot between the anxiety updates as it would have just been a man silently showering in front of another man. I've never understood our culture's tendency to cast aside our heroes. In my lifetime alone, Winston Churchill has gone from the man who won us World War II to a man demonised for his views on other races and drunkenly referring to Rubenesque ladies of good standing as slags. It is the same, if not worse, at the provincial level. Take the once revered industrialist Sir Geoffrey Butler, a stolid, megalithic man of solid Yorkshire stock, a man who raised himself from a background of abject poverty to form a cotton trading empire based upon high Protestant morals and work ethic, as well as a tendency to slap people who didn't agree with him. Sir Geoffrey began as a mill hand at the age of nine, with child labour laws at the time being as commonplace as a farewell kiss to a prostitute. Yet, through hard work and determination, he raised himself to floor manager via stints as floor sweeper, handle turner and child obtainer. After the Boer War had claimed the lives of most of the mill staff and boardroom, Sir Geoffrey was in an ideal position to assume control of the concern once the elderly head of the board, Sir Malcolm Costley, tragically passed away from what coroners described as complications arising from a size 13 boot up the rectum. Fingers were pointed at the incoming head, yet as he rightly pointed out, Sir Geoffrey was a mere size 12. 
the matter was considered settled. The great man then went on to develop the business from a national to an international enterprise, clothing consumers from all corners of the empire, becoming an aspirational figure to the working classes who dreamed of making something of themselves beyond a life of impoverished drudgery. And this was something Sir Geoffrey wanted to facilitate. He funded community betterment schemes like the, the Unwed Men for Abstinence Society, scholarships for children who wished to study divinity, and the Female Genital Hygiene League. By the time of the Second World War, Sir Geoffrey had retired, passing on the title of president to a young man of terribly humble beginnings, in a gesture of moving symmetry to his own rise to prominence. That the new head of the board had previously been declared criminally insane by three esteemed psychologists and an Anglican bishop seemed to be of little consequence. Yet when the company's post-war initiative of attempting to use leftover pork rind to synthesise edible clothing failed, Sir Geoffrey had to stand helpless as the empire he had built crumbled. Providence was a cruel mistress, he later told me in an interview for the Pickering Trumpet. Indeed it was. And it was from the line of ladies' handbags that his former company released that the old adage originated. You can't make a silk purse from a sow's ear. That should have been it for the old bull. He had achieved all that those of his industrialist peers had dreamed of. An elephantine mountain of capital, a palatial estate free of children, and a cadre of manservants to berate or beat with or without prejudice, as was his wont. But a man of his stature could never leave well enough alone. Accustomed to the position of local patrician, Sir Geoffrey maintained a vested interest in the moral health of the community his industry had once catalyzed into being. On his attendance at the Sunday service of St Mungo's Church, he would throw shilling pieces at worshippers who he deemed to be singing into Negro a fashion. A school sports day had to be cancelled after Sir Geoffrey landed his hot air balloon on the school playing fields to decry the use of bunting as papist gaudiness. By the time he had taken out a full-page advert in the Pickering Trumpet to lambast the upcoming FA Cup final as an invite to sodomy, the goodwill with the people that had taken a lifetime of philanthropy to win had expired. He was now nothing more than a mad old crank. Which makes the events of the following even more laden with pathos. To whom it may concern, there are too many ugly children in my village and I believe it is the fault of the council. I have been moved to get in touch after a teenage boy with the cranial dimensions of a bath plug had the temerity to lock proboscises with an expecting mother against my gatepost. 
The girl herself seemed to have never adjusted to Earth's atmosphere judging by her appearance and I hold little hope for her progeny. These people are breeding at an alarming rate, ever younger and with greater fervour even than previous generations of lumpen proletariat. Perhaps the council could see its way to introduce spermicide into selected homes water supplies or at least produce some pamphlets to be delivered on the downsides of procreation. Yours expectantly, Mrs. Mary Rennie. Hello and all right. Uh, my name is Barry Inverness and I'm an expert in child rearing. Uh, I say this as the happy father of uh, five happy, healthy children. And before you say that I could get a five-a-side team together, I've heard that gag so much down the pub that the idea makes us want to burn down the fucking lad bricks, so fucking leave it, yeah? And, uh, you know. But and uh, in, in, in answer to last week's question... Um, you cannot overdose on spermicide, as I'm obviously, obviously still here. But uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't said that. I've got the sneaking suspicion that Vaseline is not a spermicide. Uh, live and learn, I guess. Um, this week's sponsor is the new escape room that's just uh, opened in town, uh, Alcatraz. Um, they had to change the name from Banged Up after the owner kept finding teenagers shagging past the countdown. Um, I mean, to be, for, for me, I, I, I thought that was a, a business opportunity missed in itself, but um, never mind, eh? Let, uh, well, let's start. Uh, this first one's from Joanna in uh, Thrillcold. It says, uh, Dear Barry, I have been having a torrid time with my six-year-old recently as she's deathly afraid of horoscopes. Her grandmother had introduced the idea to her as a bit of fun, but it has had a terrible effect on her nervous system. She has gotten to believe in that all of the choice in her life has been taken away from her. I'll ask her what she fancies for tea, and she'll pick up a butter knife and start stabbing the calendar. She believes that it's all down to Mystic Meg, the psychic her grandmother read to her from and has the rather warped idea that she's coming to get her. What Mystic Meg would do once she got her hands on my daughter is unclear, but the last paints an unsettling image. How can I put her right, Barry? Christ, um... Well, for starters, I'd keep all knives and sharp things out of her reach. I mean, I've seen fucking bother done with less than a fucking butter knife-like. And I, and I, 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 don't, I don't blame her having the shits put up her by Mystic Mega either. I mean, she seems she seems the type who wants to dress you up like a monk and take a strap on to you. I'll tell you what, I speak, speaking about dress-ups, how about this, actually? Uh, you pay a rough lass a few quid, it's like, do it up with the white face paint, you know, the, 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 the wizard cape and the, the, the grebo bob. Invite her around the house when it's, when it's daylight so the kid doesn't get too flirt. Then a load of is, kick the shit out of her. Like, Meg's like, oh no, me, me, me spiritual powers do now, and she's, she's, she like pretends to die or something, you know? Splash out in the smoke machine and pretend she's melted. Yeah. The kid will feel reassured and you'll have some peace. Yeah? Uh, you could, I tell you what, you could, you could hire one of them birds who dress up like Disney princesses and come round to kids' parties and that. They're, they're dying for a bit of coin. 
My mate had one last uh, come round for his bairn's birthday, uh, dressed like the bird from Frozen. Uh, for a few bob, she played with the kids and sang Let It Go. Later on, for a, for a few more bob, she played with my mate's balls and sang... <laughs> I mean, you could easily fucking pay to bray one, like. Uh, this is from uh, Bruce in Barry. Uh, dear Barry, our son's been under a lot of pressure studying for his O-levels. He's been particularly stressed about his French exams, going over textbooks and listening to French audiobooks from what seems to be dusk till dawn. It's been causing my wife and I no end of concern. We found him on the sofa conked out the other night, speaking French out loud. This can't be healthy. What if he forgets how to speak English? Or converts to Islam? We'd appreciate any advice you could give us, buddy. Well, I was shit at French at school, like, I mean... It, 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 it might have been because our French teacher lost his tongue in the Falklands and our school couldn't afford a fucking tape player. I mean, French to me was just a lot of grunting and, and, and teeth grinding. I mean, I never got why birds thought it was romantic and that. Um, as for your lad, uh, just tell him French is a waste of time and that no job gives a fuck about it. I mean, you ever knew a, a bricklayer who could speak French? This is from Ali in Longtown. Dear Barry, this is a rather sensitive problem, but I would appreciate your input. I received a terribly embarrassing call from my son's school to inform me that he had been caught masturbating in his maths class. I was absolutely mortified. I could only apologise profusely to the headmaster and the teacher of his class, but I have no idea how to broach the subject with my son. He is at that difficult age where hormones are running wild, but he needs to know what is and isn't appropriate. His father is no help, as he is at more of a loss than even me. Please, buddy, what do I do with the lad? Maths class. It's just... That's a funny hint to fancy a ham shankin, like. It's just as well Stephen Hawking was in a wheelchair, otherwise he'd have been cracking one out left, right and centre, if that's what gets folk fucking gone. Like, Whoa, don't forget the fucking remainder, you filthy slag fucking... <laughs> honestly, but honestly, like, just tell the lad he'll never get any proper funny if he's just going at his cell for, for all and sundry to see. I mean, if you feel you really need to say something to him, I mean, I'd just leave it short of giving him a good fucking hiding. He'd have a rough go of it pulling his fucking plonker with broken fingers, eh? I hope that's been helpful. This one's from Susie and Annan. Susie and Annan. Dear Barry, I'm getting in touch after I realised that the number you had provided me with was in fact false. I'm sure you remember our time spent together and the things you said, but upon your disappearance and asking around, I now know you to be the bastard you are. <sighs> Christ, a bit strong. I'm sure families listen to this. Uh, my time with you has at least brought me one joy in my life, and I feel I must inform you that I have recently not. I'm afraid I'll have to stop you there, Susie. Uh, I'm pretty sure I can't be legally responsible if I don't carry on reading that. But I do have a few comments of my own, eh? I mean, there's no chance you wrote that by yourself, like... You are thick as fuck. And I'm not meaning the breath for that fucking moon crater ass either, like... 
You needed a McDonald's menu read to you. And I'm supposed to believe you can spell disappearance. I think, fuck me, with the fake contact, how many folk do you think have a three-digit mobile number, you dopey twat, eh? Jesus, web. I am the fucking fire brigade. Who's ever burned, that is? I hope the fucker can tie his laces without shiting his cell, because the poor kid lead every stunner of DNA he can get gone for them. <sighs> I'm fucking sick, like, I mean, to the, to the back fucking teeth. I'd have the bastard removed if I thought it'd do some good. Right, well... I'm away. Uh, if you do see me out and about with the, in, the, in the general gravitational pull of a big fat lass, please, please come and give us a slap. I mean, I might be vexed at the time, but it'll do us the well they go there. ta He actually told me what he believed the root of this fear was one time. It wasn't so much that he had a fear of water, the reality was just harder to explain. He said that the plug hole of the shower in his childhood home was unnaturally large. He figured it to be the gate to hell or something. I mean, I, I went to Catholic school, so I could relate. The devil was everywhere. The devil was the bearded Noel Edmonds. The devil was the lame dog that followed me home. The devil was the park keeper who cut the grass on weekends. When it turned out he got sent down for noncing just a few years back, you could have seen me at mass for a good month. Well, back to the showering man. Uh, one morning, as a kid, he got his foot stuck in the plug hole and screamed and yelled until his dad came and got him free. He kept going on about Satan getting a hold of him. From that day, he never showered alone again. His parents tried to get him out of it, bought him a bottle of Matey bubble bath to keep an eye on him, even got someone to paint a mural in the bathroom of a really big fella on the tiling with reassuring eyes, but it just wouldn't do. His poor parents. When he left for uni, he had communal showers in the student halls, which worked out well until he kept coming back after he'd left. The uni had his face around the halls on the campus with the words, Have you showered with this man? Which is obviously an embarrassment. After that, he got by in gyms and leisure centres until he got on with a lady who seemed to be a good match. They had met at a support group for people with unusual anxieties. I think she got migraines and exposed to synthetic fabrics or something, which just sounds like snobbery to me, if I'm being honest. When he got a promotion at Evian, it meant he had to travel about for business, which meant he quickly had to come up with a way to cope. Anyhow, this goes on a bit without incident. Every morning, seven o'clock sharp, I'd go in, comment on the weather, and follow him into the bathroom. I never thought anything funny about it. You just get used to things, don't you? I guess even a lion tamer must feel the same way as a plumber after a couple of shifts. One day, I get called away as he showers. Turned out there was a stag that had been left by his party, handcuffed naked to the car park railings, 
and they needed someone to cover his shame as Pete from maintenance took the bolt cutters to him. It's as if they knew I was a comforting presence to an awkward naked male. I remember wondering if they had somehow found out about this Sardona. I mean, Fran in the kitchen had taken to giving me sausages exclusively for the staff breakfasts. I mean, one time she'd even told me to eat them up before they got shriveled. Her husband had left her for another man, so I, you know, I, I, I let her away with it. Everyone deals with things differently. I told the showering man that I'd have to nip out for a minute, but I'm not sure if he heard me. He was going on about how he'd wanted to raise geese as a younger man, that goose was an underexploited potential money meat, and how they had a bad rap as ill-tempered beasts, but they just had to be treated like friends. I closed the door behind me, thinking that the geese wouldn't see it as so friendly once they knew their mates were being killed to be eaten of instant gravy. I pondered on this as I went down the stairs and into the car park to hold Pete from maintenance's baseball cap over his exposed genitals. The fellow was a hard man to console. He didn't even crack a smile at my good-natured joke that I'd need a bigger hat. It really is a thankless task being a hotelier. To whom it may concern, there are too many slovenly children in my village and I believe it to be the fault of the council. In the halcyon days of yore, a young boy of good standing would see a tie as an indispensable sign of respectability, not as a device to be incrementally tightened whilst masturbating. It must be the greatest irony of our times to have youths outfitted in nothing but sportswear whilst never having seen the inside of a gymnasium. As a taxpayer and concerned citizen, I implore the council to introduce a parish dress code, one that aims to introduce more aspirational values to our community. As for penalties for flouting such a proposed code, may I suggest against hanging what of my earlier allusions to the pandemic of autoerotic asphyxiation in our country. Yours expectantly, Mrs. Mary Rennie. Oh, she, she must have been reading about that boy in Surrey. <laughs> I always go to this one noodle shop after work. It's not that I'm especially into noodles, it's just cheap, it's there and I, I know it. I'm not a foodie or anything. Food is primarily just fuel. And have you ever tasted coal? I mean, I have, and it's not very good. I usually get the same thing every time I go there. Just some pork ramen, maybe a beer, if I've had a rough one at the office. I had about four or five the day a client called and said they were cancelling a contract. My co-worker asked me the day after why there were bite marks on the telephone receiver. I was going to tell him that I'd seen some mouse droppings, but thought it best to come clean. 
he'd be worried otherwise. On this one occasion that I went into the noodle shop, I hadn't had an awful day. It was one of those where you can get away without doing an awful lot. I came in and ordered what I usually have, but something bothered me about the waitress not remembering my order. She usually did, but here she was asking me what I wanted. I let it go, but it annoyed me somewhat. I usually let things go. Perhaps to my discredit at times, as some things really need pursuing. I held my tongue when the wife shaved her head. I had wanted to tell her she looked like a sad boiled egg, but I couldn't do it. Weak. Weak. When the noodles came, my bowl just had to sit there. They had given me a set of chopsticks, but not a spoon. They must have known that I'd need a spoon. I thought everyone wants a spoon to have the soup and chopsticks for the noodles. I mean, you can grip liquid as much as you can turn back time by spitting on a calendar. Something's definitely amiss here. Had all the staff been laid off? No, I recognised just about every member of staff in sight. I finally got my spoon after sitting with my hand raised for five or so minutes, which is far too long in this day and age. I dipped the spoon into the bowl and brought it to my lips. What I tasted was not what I expected. It was bland, flat, flavourless, an affront to the soup-consuming community. Then I tried the noodles. From what I could taste from those strands that hadn't stuck to my dental cavities, they were abominable. It reminded me of when my father was trying to quit smoking and he tucked to chewing paper. Once I had to go myself, because you always mimic your parents, and cried because I couldn't make any bubbles with it. He looked at me, blubbering, and said, Weak. Weak, he said. The noodles offended me, too. Put it plainly. They were so like luster, made without any care or skill. Initially, I didn't know how to take it, how to show my displeasure. I'd had so many situations like this happen to me over the years. Life being, of course, one indignity after the next, and all I've ever done was take it, cupped my testicles with my hands, and waited for another blow to come at me, but not this time. I took my shirt off, scrunched it up, and plunged it into the bowl. The soup and the noodles splashed onto the table, onto my bare torso. I loved the feeling of it, not in a deviant way, more baptismal. I marinated the shirt in the noodle stock with my chopsticks, then proceeded to, with, with great difficulty, bit by bit, eat the whole garment, save for the buttons which I spat out like tsutsuma seeds. 
I didn't mind losing the shirt. It was just part of a supermarket multi-pack of a shade of mauve that was never my favorite. And I probably experienced less discomfort eating it than the East Asian sweatshop kids did making it. And all through this, no staff member said anything. No customer even entertained engaging with me. They must have really got the message. So I showed them. I properly showed them. It was freezing that day, walking home. It could have been 20 below, and I still would have strutted home with my bare tits puffed out like the first robin of the year to get its leg over. For once in my life, I didn't let a thing go. Things would be different from now on. The town of Forsyth had elected to the office of mayor a blue-faced Leicester sheep, Sonny, in protest of the recent agricultural laws limiting the allocation of farmland to the rearing of woolen livestock. It was that funny period after the war when, when Parliament had legalised the cultivation of marijuana for export as a means of pacifying the colonies who wanted free from imperial rule. The incoming Labour government had thought this idea to be a stroke of genius until it turned out the, the livestock and rogue populace of rural Britain were consuming the crops at an alarming rate, leading to psychoactive meat and the creation of a generation of layabouts content to suckle at the teat of the nascent welfare state. This once great nation still hasn't fully recovered. I had been charged by the Pickering Trumpet to report on the swearing-in ceremony, held on Easter Sunday of all times, an event that promised to be a farce of dung and bleating that would no doubt shift copies. I arrived at the town hall, trying to clear my mind of all puns that are the miserable vice of the tabloid journalist. You wouldn't believe it. What this town needs is leadership, says new mayor. Farm town tired of fleecing from Whitehall. If I had succumbed to urges such as that, I would have never gone as far as writing copy for a page three of a national. The hall was abuzz with jocular laughter and the reek of beer. The town had obviously marked this as a day of festivities, a means of catharsis from the miserable condition to which they had been subjected to. And when they led the sheep, Sonny, from the side of the stage to the rostrum, the crowd was in hysterics. As the sheep was obviously incapable of reciting the oath of office, an official-looking citizen, who I recognised to be a local butcher, ironically enough, uh, asked the sheep of its allegiance to the Queen and its commitment to competent governance, to which the sheep appeared struck dumb in the hungry eyes of the drunken mob, a sheepish figure. Sheep. Yet when I looked to the rear of the hall, I saw the cause for the sheep's consternation. 
Sir Geoffrey had made his entrance unheralded beneath the attention of the baying and bleary eyes of those about, and was stalking to the stage in slow and pregnant strides, mouth twisted agape by the blasphemy he saw before him. As his ancient hulking frame finally mounted the stage, assisted by the unwilling back of a felled teenager, the crowd quieted in realisation of the bother that was to come. Sir Geoffrey turned to address the crowd and bellowed in a tremulous voice of the depraved, immoral revelry he saw before him, of how democracy had been on trial and had been found wanting. The crowd fell silent, ashamed, as was only natural considering the status of the man. He then strode over to the incumbent mayor of Forsyth, Sonny, and lay his hand upon his woolly back, and with that trembling voice he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He then took his hands to the throat of the stupefied sheep, and wrung it like an old dish cloth. As most folk with an agricultural awareness might know, to strangle a blue-faced Lester is no mean feat, and even here, with the undiminished strength possessed by Sir Geoffrey, it was an agonising spectacle. To see him wrestle the poor beast to and fro, tongue lolling, eyes bulging, and the sheep looking similar. No man stopped him, they all stood caps held to their breasts in shock. By the time it was over, and the sheep had bleated its last bleat, Sir Geoffrey was dripping with sweat, adding to the stale, beery air the old man musk of expired cologne and dusty udine. They got him late that night when the town had recovered itself, the police rapping on his door to drag him unceremoniously from his chamber, his manservants more than willing to aid the authorities in their extraction. However rich and powerful you may be, no man was so above the law as not to be prosecuted for assassinating an elected official in broad daylight. The piece that I had planned to write, one light in tone, satirical in nature, rather went out the window, as I joined the bare-headed crowd in shuffling out of the hall, leaving only the butcher to drag the sheep by its hindquarters to his battered van. I thought about some metaphor with the Lamb of God statement, and the fact that half the town would soon be eating its flesh, but figured it in bad taste. What I eventually produced was rather solemn, rather elegiac if I do say so myself, I refused to be drawn on criticising the mental faculties of Sir Geoffrey, his moralising or his erratic behaviour towards the autumn of his years. To me, he was still the man who professed literacy for spastics, who ensured the schools had Bibles of all the gore and smut taken out, the community leader. He died in prison, and though at that point I had went from the pickering trumpet to pastors new, I managed to procure a copy in the wake of his death on a coincidental visit home. The front page bore his obituary. The headline, 
Sir Geoffrey Butler, industrialist, philanthropist, sheep strangler. It seems to me, when I am in one of my more wistful moods, that in these times we receive our kindest epitaphs while still living. To whom it may concern, there are too many strong children in my village, and I believe it is the fault of the council, perhaps with the policy of the school milk being riddled with cow steroids. Looking out from my living room window, I could see a knot of feral youth, at least six foot each, and not a day over eleven, the lot of them. In my day, such brute strength would be better suited to the armed forces, and not learning arithmetic developed by Arabic homosexuals. It is up to the council to, if not reintroduce conscription, at least introduce the fundamentals of bayonet fighting into the school curriculum. Yours expectantly, Mrs. Mary Rennie. Oh, that's it. I've took a day off work to come in here and listen to her whinging beyond the bastard grave. Oh, fuck me, you know, I can, I can see where those fat kids decided to eat her. I came back up to the room not feeling as guilty as I should have. All in all, I must have been gone for, say, ten minutes or so, so I expected him to be somewhere approaching dried off and dressed. He usually said I could go at that point, but I figured he'd want an explanation as to why I wasn't there. If he was to turn around and say that I had betrayed the responsibilities of my post or something, I probably would have taken it well enough. A job like that doesn't last forever. It's not like he had a pension plan or what have you. I couldn't put him down as a reference on my CV. Future employers would just have to take me at my word that I'd watched a man bathe on a part-time basis. So what skills did you learn during your time at this position, Mr. Turner? Ah, well, I learned how to maintain eye contact for a prolonged period of time. Mr. Turner, you're hired. We think you'd make a fine addition to our team here at Serial Killer Insurance. Morbid? Yes. Inappropriate? No. I called his name and got no response, so I went into the bathroom. No need to stand on ceremony when he'd seen a man soap his bollocks up on the regular. He was still in the shower, the water going, but not in his previous upright position. Instead, he lay curled up like an expired spider, not answering my drawn-out attempts to ask if he was alright. I went over to where he lay and had to look past him to the plug hole. You know, with what he said and all. I turned off the water, took my shoes and socks off and kind of stepped over him gingerly, or respectfully as I should say, before having a look down into the black. And I'll never forget what I saw there. I really can't say, but it's haunted me to this day. So. I know it's an unusual request, but I'll give you 50 quid a time. 
You don't have to look at me or anything, but I've got these things I might need you to tell me. Do you know what a mantra is? Not all the water in the rough rude sea can wash the balm from an anointed king. Just an hour of meditation. Don't want to brag or anything, but... Nailed it! <laughs>